Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. When President Biden advocated suspending patents to speed up the global rollout of pandemic-busting vaccines, it was a surprise. But was his generous-minded suggestion missing the point? Here's Ashish Yar speaking on The Naked Scientist Show, Malaria Vaccine, Net Zero, and Project Hail Mary. Unfortunately, I think it's, it's much, the issue is much bigger than the patents, because if it was a simply an issue of patents, uh, that'd be great. And I would, of course, support then making the patents open, because it would quickly allow us to scale up manufacturing and get the world vaccinated. There is no question in my mind that, that what needs to happen is we need to produce billions of doses of vaccines. We need to do it in a way that is free for people who are receiving it. I'm happy to have governments of various governments pay for it at different levels, depending on your income. Uh, and, and personally, I, I think that the rich countries can fund it for the whole world. I don't think money is the problem here. We're discussing big pharma and medical patents this week. Big Pharma is sometimes painted as greedy, even villainous, but I promise that our discussion will be more nuanced than that. My guests are Gert Randawa, Professor of Diversity in Public Health at the University of Bedford, and a previous contributor to Naked Reflections. And two first-timers, Dr. Richard Jennings, who worked for the pharmaceutical company Knapp before heading up Cambridge Enterprise, which acts as a conduit between scientific research and the marketplace. We also unusually have a third guest this week, and I'm delighted to welcome Yuan Hu, Senior Legal and Policy Advisor at Medicine Sans Frontieres. Richard, would you agree that patents are not at the root of the global vaccine rollout problem? Probably not, though they're certainly a contributor. I think there are a lot of misunderstandings about patents and what they are. How they use is, is something rather different. I mean, they've been around for several centuries. Some of the first ones were granted in the 15th century, and they really came to fore, I suspect, you know, industrial revolution following that. Uh, people forget that the object of the patent was to allow people to benefit from the fruits of their labors, if I can put it like that, that they were time limited. You, they run out after normally 20 years. And if you've been working on a project for many, many years, you've invested a lot of time, effort, money in it, you put your product on the market, it then allows you to stop other people pinching your idea. So the intention is very honourable, if you like, in a, in a capitalist society. Yuan, are you happy with Richard's summary? We have been following the patent issues in the organization for two decades. When we look at how the uh, major pharmaceutical industry are using this system, we have seen a lot of abusive use of the system. The system has lost its balance uh, compared to its original design. When it's come to 20 years monopoly, we often see in our work in uh, uh, developing countries, income countries as well, but many upper middle income countries who have manufacturing capacity, we see the, the, the big pharma trying to use all type of legal means to extend that monopoly by applying for more patents on the same medicine. So to what extent those same more patents when 20 years supposed to be the 
the finish line, but then we often see the monopoly doesn't finish at 20 years because people have new patents, so they have a new monopoly. And then uh, oftentimes those new patents, in our view and analysis, doesn't necessarily represent innovation. It represents market monopoly. So that the technology will stay concentrated with a certain manufacturers and then not really disseminate it globally to enable more people to learn and more people to be able to produce. So that is how we see it. Even looking at the patent system itself, the, the way how it's been used already far away from its original design. Gertrude, where do you sit? We've got two very different views there. We've got many companies, especially in the UK, who've benefited from taxpayers' money in developing their vaccine and putting it crudely, you know, their profits appear to be taking privilege over the health and lives of many people in developing countries. And just to remember that probably by the end of this year, by the end of 2021, most rich countries will have in excess of 1 billion, 1 billion doses this year, which we will hoard um, and I suspect many of those will get discarded, they won't all get used, and we are not giving them away. And I suppose I would sort of change this debate a bit in that I would want us to move away from this narrative that many governments and corporations have adopted around sort of uh, donations, you know, we will give to this pot. It's based on a charity model, it's based on philanthropy, whereas I would talk about equality and justice um, because if we if we get into philanthropy debates, what I see at the moment is a very performative form of philanthropy rather than authentic philanthropy. And I think that's a sort of a, a dangerous narrative to go down. But I think that's where we're at at the moment. If, if we can accept that morally and ethically that we want a global manufacturing base for vaccinations, then we can resolve patents. But if we don't accept that we want a global manufacturing base so that every country becomes as self-sustainable as it can be, then in a sense, the the debate about patents becomes a bit of a red herring. I would agree with you wholeheartedly, except it's not technology. I mean, the technology is, is very well known. I mean, to extend the bigger picture argument, I mean, measles, malaria, Massive, massive killers already, and we know exactly what to do about them to help people deal with them, and yet we choose not to do that either, let alone COVID, which is obviously the headline disease at the moment, an absolutely colossal issue which you you raise. The technology, I should just add, is uh, certainly the technology on the COVID vaccines is pretty complicated, and uh, this idea of having a sort of global system that you just turn on and off at night is it's not as simple as that, if I could put it like that. Growing these biotechnologically derived materials from living systems is not like cooking. You can't add A and B and get C. So to some extent, I think there's a very good argument for leaving it with people who know how to do it, but ensuring that the output of that is widely disseminated. And as you say, leaving it to charity is not ideal. Because of this model, we are trapped into this charity uh, dilemma, which I totally agree with Gertz, because uh, 
why can't country have the knowledge and technology and help themselves protect their population rather than waiting for uh, somebody's goodwill or willingness and waiting at the back of a queue and take other people's leftover. This is not acceptable. If we accept that right to health is a human rights, everybody needs to be treated equal globally. When we have the you know, global knowledge about this virus, because virus the how virus work doesn't belong to any private entity, doesn't belong to anyone. It's a common knowledge of the humankind. And the way, uh, the tools and the way of treating and preventing that should also belong to humankind, not belong to one company of Pfizer and others. But the system allow us to let the company appropriate those humankind common knowledge and common good. But for the next pandemic, many people start talking about next pandemic when we are still suffering the current pandemic. So that is also another problem. But if we want the future system to be more just, fair, and then really can uh, ensure equity and justice and, and rights, and we have to do some more radical change uh, between how government regulating companies, what kind of requirement in the whole R&D kind of ecosystem that should be more transparent, accountable, and taxpayers' money, not just the money, but also the contribution from clinical trial participates, from everybody who contributed with biological materials, knowledge, and practice. All of this need to be recognized by a system that's not polarized to some private entity only. Richard, I wonder if you, with your experience working for a pharmaceutical company, can help us break down or break through that impasse that Yuan's just talked about? I mean, the company I worked at was owned by the, um, this is now in Cambridge, uh, was owned by the Sackler family who um, owned the infamous company called Purdue Frederick in America, which made this drug oxycodone, which led to this massive scandal, basically. And I mean, the particular issue there was, I mean, there's one technical issue, which treatment of pain is very badly done and we're still using opioid drugs which have been around for thousands of years because we don't have anything better i mean they work to address pain but they're very addictive and we don't have anything better so there's a big argument we should be doing lots of more research on the area of pain to produce better drugs anyway the company came up really exactly as one said the this idea of extending the patent life by producing a slow release formulation of these materials the good thing was the idea was you give somebody one pill a day rather than a series of very painful injections at two or three hourly intervals so again that's the good side of the argument the downside was the company essentially rather hid the fact that these drugs are very addictive and tried to push the line that used in a medical context they weren't, which it turned out not to be true. And they became very heavily abused and the, and the rest, as they say, is history. And the consequences of all that have been, been very well written up. It's a very extreme example. This idea of extending the life of patents doesn't happen too often. I mean, pharmaceutical companies are terrified of the so-called patent cliff uh, when the ability to make money stops and it falls off and then is available generically. And happily, there's some fantastic generic companies available, particularly in India, as Kirch may well know, who've done absolutely fantastic job of making drugs more widely available. So there is a will among many people. The AstraZeneca vaccine was developed 
initially, as you know, to be disseminated at a um, essentially at cost, and that was under the influence of the University of Oxford, which said that's the way they wanted. And we've always done that in Cambridge. We try and build into our licenses terms to encourage companies to make the products available to developing countries as well as in you know, first world countries, if I can put it like that. But it is a very difficult issue. I mean, I think the issue is ultimately political. There has to be a political will, both on the on our countries and also in the recipient countries, many of whom don't seem to be too bothered about the health of their population. I mean, we regard that as you know, a healthy population is, is one of our top priorities, but sadly, that doesn't seem to be the case globally. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and my guests this week are Richard Jennings, Gert Randawa, and Yuan Hu. And we're talking about medical patents, or patents, there's some discussion there, and Big Pharma. Discussing these matters in the eLife podcast, BATNAV, TB, and Aspirin, Suzanne Muller-Knapp of the Goethe University cited the case of the development of protein inhibitors, which are highly valuable in combating certain sorts of disease. These compounds, they come from the pharmaceutical industry, and for many years, uh, the pharmaceutical industry has been rather closed, and so these high-quality compounds, they have generated, existed, but they have not been available In more recent years, these compounds are available through commercial vendors, but not all of them. Gertsch, I want to pick up on something that Richard said towards the end of the first half, which is our attitude globally to human suffering. I think that was the implication that some countries didn't care so much about their citizens. Would you accept that? I mean, that seems to me controversial, to say the least. I don't want to sort of be dismissive of the fact that, for example, you know, uh, there was an effort to establish a COVID global vaccine sharing entity called COVAX, and it was meant to uh, sort of buy about doses to vaccinate around, I think, about 20% of people in the 92 poorest countries by the end of 2021, but it's not getting there. And I know we just referred to India earlier on, the Indian and South African governments have been trying to lead a proposal to temporarily waive intellectual property protection on COVID technologies. And they have got the backing of about 100 countries to do that. But again, many countries are trying to block that via the World Trade Organization. And also the World Health Organization have been trying their best by setting up something called the COVID-19 technology access pool, where they've tried to encourage vaccine developers to share vaccine know-how and pooling their licensing arrangements, etc. But again, you know, very few companies have sort of stepped up to work with them. So I think, you know, there have been initiatives trying to solve this issue, but we're not making um, the progress. And, And as I said, it goes back to for me, notions around equity and justice, and we kind of need to do something sooner rather than later. And we need, we need to take a sort of an international approach to this, whereby we're not allowing, uh, which currently is happening, rich countries just to dictate what happens to poor countries. Yuan, you talked about the impasse, and I think Gertz has fleshed that out even more. Is it as simple as the countries and the government saying, that's what we're going to do? Is it as simple as that? Or are there other factors to practically make this change? From the very beginning of the pandemic, there is a huge outcry from public health 
expert epidemiologists, people who work in developing countries, say, watch out, you know, this, this virus is destroying the health system. So for countries who have a vulnerable system already, they will face double the challenge. I mean, people probably didn't buy that because the transmission wasn't uh, in some of the low-income countries. But we see now, we see the explosion in India early this year. We see explosion of cases in Africa. All of the worry and calling and the messaging last year has been proven true this year. When many of those countries, India probably can produce something, but the, the speed of the transmission is out past the speed of production locally for many countries whose experience is this double burden of vulnerable health system, displaced internally displaced the population that MSF work a lot with, and some of the other disease burden. And at the same time, you need to control a pandemic. And they have no local kind of means to see, okay, even not in my country, but my neighbor, they didn't help me. If they get the technology and do it, so at, at least at the regional level, we don't need to just wait for UK to do something or US to do something. Are there any signs of us overcoming aspects of this? Are there any models that we can point to that are breaking through this impasse, even just very small ones? Because it sounds like it needs something to make this difference. I'm hearing a very bleak picture. Gertrude's right. I mean, you just described a situation where companies are capable of producing quite large amounts of vaccines. I mean, there, issue, there are issues of stability and distribution. I mean, the, the Pfizer one probably is more stable than they initially thought, which makes life a little easier that you can probably keep it in a domestic freezer rather than in a minus 80 fridge. But there's so many practical issues to overcome. You look at a company like Brazil and even Australia, actually. I mean, they were very reluctant to introduce the technology at all or, or even believe the virus was a problem. I mean, that's the thing that always vexes me, uh, working at the rather simplistic end of things, that there's uh, no appetite in many places to even even have the technology. So how, how you break down these difficult barriers that both of you describe, I, I really don't know. There's many scientists uh, around the globe who have been researching, on not for the pandemic, but for other diseases, and we know developers in Thailand, in, in China, even in other a few countries, they are working from thermal stable, stable version from the beginning. And they are doing very interesting trials. And then we don't know, of course, it's high risk. We don't know whether it will be successful or not. But then if if the attention support could go to the non-traditional farmer, in a sense, then maybe we can have a different revenue to see, okay, we don't have to wait for Pfizer. Of course, it would be nice. But if the technology could be learned and transferred and used by more countries in the South, they can stand up and protect themselves as much as possible. I think that's really good points. I suppose I'm just mulling over some of the observations. I'd like to agree, really, with both other panellists. I think politics appears to be trumping science at the moment. And I suspect there's inevitably a lot of vaccine apartheid at play at the moment. So when you look at some of the, again, the media narratives and government positions that uh, people are adopting in various parts of the world, there seems to be a lot of downplaying of any vaccines that are developed in, say, for example, China, India or Russia because they're manufactured there, they're viewed negatively. Um, But I suspect 
if we're not careful and if we don't get vaccines distributed across the world, you will probably find that those countries such as China, India and Russia will probably start to fill that gap. And that may well be the tipping point that we need for seeing the eventual sharing of manufacturing capability, intellectual property, technical expertise, because ultimately we need these vaccine hubs across the world, but we need a tipping point for that to happen. So whether it's because we're going to see other countries try to come in and fill that void, that may be the tipping point, or we're going to see common sense prevail. Do you think, Gertz, the capitalist system is intrinsically unable to deal with the need for the global rollout of vaccine? Well, I think, as I said at the beginning, I think the fact that we've got, by the end of this year, excess billion doses held in the richest countries is a terrible indictment on our society. And we're going to be discarding lots of those vaccines. Um, And all those governments need to be held to account. And I suspect what surprised me is there hasn't been some kind of like moral outrage about this. You know, you you haven't seen any sort of big corporations or governments or even media companies sort of profiling this and saying, you know, how awful this is. We seem to all be colluding and silence is not a good position to adopt, in my opinion. I'm not sure where that figure comes from, but uh, you may well be right. But I think a lot of the reason people are stockpiling it is because as you see in Israel at the moment there is strong evidence that the vaccine is losing its effect after a time and that uh, the reason it's being stockpiled is to use as boosters for people like me in their 70s so (laughs) at one level I very selfishly think is this a good thing but I like you I absolutely agree I think I would rather those vaccines were used for people who need them more than we do. Absolutely, I agree with that. I mean, that has been addressed in the media to an extent, but it hasn't caused outrage, as you very rightly say. What would it take to put pressure on the politicians to actually implement these changes that that you've all called for, you and a sort of outline? What would make a difference? I think the voices, I mean, I think Gertz colleagues, anybody who's working in the kind of ethics, moral areas have just got, their voices have got to be heard and they've got to make their voices heard. When, uh, when I, easy to say, Richard. I mean, it's easy to say. Well, I know um, it is, but how else yeah. do you do it? I mean, it's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it's water on a stone, you know, it gets there eventually. We don't comment on religious issues a lot, but I do see, for instance, uh, Pope Francis has been quite vocal from the beginning as probably the leading uh, religious leader. And then we also see a few archbishops from South Africa has been quite vocal on this issue. And there are some interface uh, group in US has been following the, the, the Biden administration, urging companies such as Moderna because recent research show US government actually have a lot of leverage if they really want to ask a company to share technology. They haven't done so. So there was some interface group uh, domestically trying the efforts. But I don't know, you know, globally, it's hard to say. But uh, I agree with uh, Richard, actually, you know, different uh, stakeholders need to, because in this year, one unusual thing we had experienced as access to medicines um, organization is that we have been working with different organizations working on different issues. 
people used to work on environmental issues and join the call, working on other issues in the trade union, labor rights. Some some people like we never have a crossing paths in in the, in the past. They all uh, recognize this injustice and inequity because the sense of uh, commonness in the pandemic is really deeply rooted in the civil society side, <laughs> but in the politician side, it's not yet, unfortunately. Well, I'm sure Naked Reflections listeners will be outraged by what they've heard. So maybe this is just the beginning. We must stop there. Thanks to my guests, Richard Jennings, Gert Randawa, and Yuan Hu. And thank you too for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not look at our back catalogue of discussions? We're approaching our 100th episode and they're all available for listening. You may also want to check out the other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at the Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with some more guests.